Good afternoon and welcome to Africa.com's Crisis Management for African Business Leaders. My name is Soko Sibia from Africa.com and it's my pleasure to introduce Africa.com Chairman and CEO Teresa Clark. Thank you very much, Soko. I'd like to thank you for joining us for this webinar series. We're particularly proud to host the largest ever gathering of private sector leaders in Africa and throughout the world. We're here to explore the, uh, what's behind the data um, with regard to COVID-19 in Africa. And we at Africa.com want to make sure that our audience is very clear about our editorial perspective. We founded Africa.com over 10 years ago because we didn't feel that the Western media did a fine job in sharing the good, the bad, and the ugly around Africa. Too often, the good stories were not told. And it's very unclear as we move forward with COVID-19 whether the skepticism around these numbers is valid or whether there are some important reasons why um, the COVID-19 has not hit as hard as it should have. And some of those reasons are not necessarily natural reasons, such as the warm climate. We want to acknowledge the tremendous work that's been done by Africa WHO, by the African CDC, by the CDCs in the respective countries. And we think that part of the reason that the numbers are what they are is because Africa is doing a fine job at implementing best practices from a global perspective in terms of spreading, um, in terms of spreading the pandemic. And so we know there have been very thoughtful uses of lockdowns throughout the continent and a number of other measures that we think are contributing to the success um, in Africa. But we still want to explore what's happening behind these numbers. Um, I will say from a personal perspective in the month of February, I traveled to Mauritius, to South Africa and to the United States. And I was quite impressed that both Mauritius and South Africa were testing and screening all passengers. And if you were to enter those countries with um, a fever, you were taken aside. I then followed those travels with a trip to New York and waltzed right through JFK Airport. So again, we wanna make sure that credit is given where credit is due. And we know that Africa has been working very hard against this pandemic. We'd like to start with a poll in order to give our panelists today an understanding of where our audience is thinking. So if now, um, Soko, I'll leave it over to you and I'd like you to run the poll for us. To what extent do you agree with the following statement? I have confidence in the data that African governments are reporting with regard to COVID-19. Do you strongly agree? Agree? Neither agree nor disagree. Disagree or strongly disagree. So the results are in and 34% of participants disagree with the statement, whilst 25% neither agree nor disagree. 25% agree. 12% um, strongly disagree with the statement and only 4% strongly agree. I'll leave it to Teresa to analyze those results. Well, I hope that that's useful to our panelists today to get some sense as to where the audience is and will help guide you in your remarks. I'd also like to move on. We'd like to interact with our audience as much as possible. We asked, what is your greatest concern? And one of the concerns that we heard was coordination of easing the lockdown with the number of cases. People are impatient, but the policies need to be in step with the data. Is that happening? That is a question that came in from Kenya. From Nigeria, we heard Africa's testing capacity and the validity of official figures in Africa, especially Nigeria. It seems that more people may be dying without being diagnosed, so the number of deaths may be understated. From South Africa, we heard the US is just figuring out their data and waking up to the fact that kids have been dying of COVID without the same symptoms as adults. What does that mean for Africa's youthful population? So with that, I'd like to introduce you to our esteemed panelists who are here to tackle this issue today. 
Dr. Mwedi is from Botswana. She is the first woman to be elected as the WHO Regional Director for Africa. Over the past five years, she's led the transformation of WHO to ensure that the organization is accountable, effective, and driven by results. A key feature of the regional director's leadership is the cultivation of strong partnerships, both with traditional and new partners, including philanthropic foundations, civil society, academia, and increasing engagement with young people and women in global health. Dr. Mowedi is a public health veteran with almost 40 years of national and international experience. She joined the WHO Regional Office in Africa in 1999 and has served in almost every role there, Deputy Regional Director, Assistant Regional Director. She's had a number of roles within WHO before taking the top spot. Dr. Mowedi is renowned for having led WHO's 3 by 5 initiative in Africa at the height of the HIV AIDS epidemic, which resulted in a significant increase in access to antiretroviral therapy for those living with HIV. Dr. Mowedi holds degrees in medicine from the Royal Free Hospital School of Medicine, University of London, and has a master's degree in public health from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Respect. Thank you very much, Dr. Mowedi. We have Dr. Chikwe here with us. He founded the Epi Africa and Nigeria Health Watch as managing partner and editor respectively in 2011. Then he moved to Johannesburg, South Africa with his family to become the co-director of the Center for Tuberculosis at the South African National Institute for Communicable Diseases in Johannesburg. He later served as a medical epidemiologist consultant at the United Kingdom's Health Protection Agency, and he is currently the chief executive officer of the Nigeria Center for Disease Control. He was the acting director of the Regional Center for Disease Control for West Africa. Following Nigeria's National Assembly Bill and Act, Nigeria's Center for Disease Control became an independent agency in 2018, and Chikwe emerged as the first chief executive and director general of the agency. During the COVID-19 pandemic, he has been part of a team of experts of the World Health Organization that went on a joint mission to study the epidemic in China. Chikwe holds an MBBS from the University of Nigeria and a master's in public health from Heinrich Heine University in Germany. I should also mention that many people on this call are probably familiar with TEDx Houston, a wonderful platform that for 10 years brought dynamic talks to all of us on a range of interesting African topics. And Dr. Chikwe was the founder and driver behind that initiative. So he has quite a range of left brain, right brain, and we're very happy to have you here today in your capacity uh, with respect to your day job. Thank you very much for joining us. Lastly, we have David Kay. David Kay is a clinical professor of law at the University of California, Irvine, and the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Promotion and Protection of the Right to Freedom of Opinion and Expression. He was appointed by the UN Human Rights Council in 2014, and he is the UN's principal monitor for freedom of, of expression and issues worldwide. In April 2020, just last month, he published an important paper for the United Nations titled Disease Pandemics and the Freedom of Opinion and Expression. This report registers concern that some efforts to combat COVID-19 may be failing to meet the standards of legality, necessity, and proportionality. In this report, he highlights five areas of concern showing that access to information, independent media, and other free expression rights are critical to meeting the challenges of the pandemic. David also published a very important book that I'd like to mention, Speech Police in 2019, which speaks on the, uh, the global struggle to govern the internet. And it explores the ways in which companies, governments, and activists struggle to define the rules for online expression. Um, David did both his undergraduate and graduate work at the University of California, Berkeley, 
and he joined the U.S. Department as uh, U.S. State Department as a lawyer in 1995. In addition to his work on human rights and freedom of expression, his academic research and writing have focused on accountability for serious human rights abuses, international humanitarian law, and the international law regarding use of force. He's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and a former member of the Executive Council of the American Society of International Law. He has published essays in publications such as Foreign Affairs, The New York Times, Slate, Foreign Policy, and The Los Angeles Times. So with that, I'd like to turn the floor over to Dr. Moetti. Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, good afternoon to, to everyone. All right. So, so I, I'm very grateful to have been invited. I'm very pleased to finally have been able to say yes and be, and be present for this uh, very important webinar. And I'm uh, so amazed and impressed by the breadth and depth and diversity of people who are joining this meeting. So it's a great pleasure to be able to join you. Um, and then secondly, I have to say the, the questions at the beginning and the responses uh, indicate that we have a lot of work to do. <laughs> so that's a, a challenging starting point, but clearly we need to be able to help um, all of us understand what the situation is and what, what the, the data that uh, we are sharing because the member states, the countries have shared with us is showing and what it means about the situation in Africa, what, what we should understand about the evolution of the pandemic here, the impact of some of the interventions that have been put in place, um, not only in terms of the, the public health outcomes that are very important, but also broader impacts on people's lives and we are understanding very importantly on economies in countries so that uh, the impact is not going to be only what happens in relation to controlling this pandemic but uh, we are understanding it could be longer term because of some of the, uh, the socio-economic uh, results both of the pandemic itself and also of some of the measures that have been or have had to be put in place. So if we can move to the second slide, please. The next slide. Uh, you'll recall that it took several months. It took a couple of months after the outbreak started in China that we weren't seeing any cases reported in African countries. And we were worrying and fretting, what does it mean? Even as we worked in WHO and with partners like the Africa CDC to quickly help our member states to be prepared, to build up their, what we call their preparedness, which is part of what we do in, in WHO. And <clears throat> here we're just highlighting the fact that the start seemed to be very slow. It took uh, almost a month to reach a thousand cases. And then we started to see an acceleration in the increase, in, in the rate of increase in, uh, of cases. So versus, uh, it took nine days at one point to move from 30,000 to 50,000 cases. And at the moment on the African continent, we have almost um, 100,000 cases. We're already looking forward to marking that, uh, that day. And we've had uh, 2,800 uh, 2, so people who died. So, the region that I work with is not the whole of the African continent, but that's just a detail. So we work with mainly sub-Saharan African countries and Algeria, where <clears throat> we have um, about 60, almost 65,000 cases and 1,800 deaths. The countries with the largest number of cases are shown here, South Africa, 
Algeria, Nigeria, Ghana, and Cameroon. And some of them, of course, are among the more populous countries in the region, but we have large countries like the Democratic Republic of the Congo and Ethiopia, population-wise, that don't have this uh, number of cases. All the cases virtually that, that occurred, all of the, all the cases that occurred in Africa have been imported from somewhere else. And mainly they were imported from, through travelers from European countries, from the European hotspots, Italy, uh, Spain, and uh, later the UK, and also from the United States. So that big concern about importation from China because of the close contact between Africa and China actually didn't happen. So mostly we have had either returnees, African people, or European travelers of one type or another traveling to African countries. And generally the capital cities where the big uh, international flights land is where people first were identified as uh, having come in with COVID-19 infections, <clears throat> apart from a couple of exceptions. And then we would see clusters around that person, either in the family or a social group that's related to the individual's concern. And then later we have seen broader community transmission. So we can no longer trace back cases to an individual person who um, infected them. So we have 25 countries now in the African region out of our 47 member states where community transmission is occurring. But it's in only four of these that we have if you like widespread geographic spread. So well beyond the capital city to the next level of urban areas and into rural areas. In most of these uh, countries, in about 20 of them, we still have largely a couple of hotspots, including the capitals and perhaps a few other localities. So it's in uh, countries like South Africa, Nigeria, um, Cameroon, and, and also Algeria that we have more widespread geographic spread. Um, we do have a number of countries where we still have only sporadic cases, as we are calling them. And I'd just like to highlight the fact that uh, there are countries like Namibia and the Seychelles that did have a number of cases at the beginning and that for more than a month have not reported cases. We've seen uh, in countries like Mauritius and Botswana a number of cases, sporadic cases increasing and then are seeing a reduced number of new cases being reported. I'd also like to, to just um, underline the fact that um, we have seen quite a large number of people recover from being infected. And as you see on the graph on the right there, there is a, marked in blue are people who have been detected, confirmed as being infected and who are still being in some way or other confirmed as having recovered. So recovery is uh, defined by having a negative test, a couple of negative tests having been uh, tested positive. And I think we can understand that uh, with the current context, which I'll explain shortly, of capacity for testing, especially access to test kits, that countries are not able to invest a huge number of tests in confirming that somebody is no longer a case. But the majority of these people have been asymptomatic, so they are not ill, and uh, we are showing there a certain number of deaths which I've already mentioned. If we can move on to the next slide, please. So getting immediately to the question of uh, sharing of uh, surveillance information by African countries, just to provide some background that for many years, we have in place a system that we call the integrated 
strategy of disease surveillance and response. So where we have established um, a number of um, notifiable diseases and countries, including uh, the Africa CDC, so institutions that are responsible for disease control, uh, report for the, to WHO on a regular basis, on an ongoing basis, cases of certain communicable diseases. And we have uh, established and designed this, and WHO has worked with, with countries for over 30 years in the African region around this integrated disease surveillance and response strategy. So we are very accustomed to getting reports of uh, diseases from countries. And then of course, when there's an outbreak, as happens if there is something like a measles outbreak or happened with a yellow fever outbreak, we establish a more intense way of following up on the data. So just to emphasize that member states are used to reporting epidemiological data to WHO. And there is a certain obligation that they have to do this based on the international health regulations. This is a, a, a treaty, an agreed um, international health treaty where member states have accepted their responsibility to share data in order to minimize the international spread of disease. In, in, in addition, of course, to their responsibility to prevent and limit the spread of disease within their borders. I, I would like to say that um, the, the pandemic at the beginning, when one feature of this pandemic in African countries is that unlike many of the outbreaks that we've heard of cholera, of uh, other diseases, because of the way in which it has entered into countries, it has to a larger extent than usual entered into the upper echelons of society. So we found at the beginning when countries have first had their cases that they have some very senior people in the society. We've had uh, members of parliaments. I think we've, we have seen this in the data. We've had presidents of parliaments infected. And initially that was, this was very intimidating in terms of reporting such cases. There was, um, concern, occasionally reluctance, particularly to share data that included identifiers of people. So our, our colleagues have had to negotiate, particularly at the beginning, when, when countries start seeing their first cases, it is a challenge because it's an unfamiliar uh, experience in terms of the general um, outbreaks that we are seeing. However, we've, and, and here I'd like to emphasize that our colleagues, the WHO representatives, the surveillance officers that we have in countries, have been working with the, the systems in our countries over the years and we found ways through a trusting established relationship to be able to get data from the countries. We've also worked very much with some of the partners that um, I'm sure you hear, the Africa CDC, the US CDC, Public Health England, other partners working on surveillance to help establish what we call national incident management systems, so a, a team whose role it is to manage not only the monitoring in terms of data, but also the response to the outbreak. We also, as I say, have other, other surveillance systems ongoing, and we have an established influenza surveillance system. So we have sentinel sites, as we call them, that are constantly reporting data to WHO in 28 countries. So, so that's uh, just over half of our member states where we have continued to monitor this respiratory illness, both clinically and in terms of uh, laboratory data, because we thought that it would be a, 
a good proxy for cases of uh, COVID-19, uh, which also has some respiratory features in case there were gaps in the, either the reporting or the testing of, uh, of data. We've seen as uh, countries started off, I'd like to say initially testing people who presented with symptoms at, at the health facility. So mainly it was cases with symptoms. And as we encouraged earlier testing, earlier case finding, we have found that more and more countries as they have the capacity started to reach out and also try in some cases to identify people who are asymptomatic. And so we think that um, the more uh, people per, per 10,000 uh, countries are testing and they are sharing that data, the more we believe that we are seeing a near true picture of the situation of the outbreak. So our surveillance for, for influenza did not show a huge upsurge of, uh, of cases. And we also have in a number of cases established ways of being in touch with people in the community and being, being made aware when something happens where there's a, an unusual pattern of, death, pattern of deaths or illness at the community level that makes us believe that there would be if you like, triggers and alarms and alerts sent to the, into the surveillance systems if there was a funny, strange pattern of diseases. We also, at the beginning, before we started seeing cases in Africa, we saw thousands of alerts that were tested. So there were people seeing this could be a case and then the systems in countries were testing the, the incident management systems that were progressively being established. And it was possible to eliminate many, many alerts of possible COVID-19. Um, and we've seen in some cases uh, where there's community-based um, illness, community-based reporting of illness, uh, it triggering a real discovery of cases in some of the countries. And I'll just cite here what happened in Kano State in Nigeria. I'm sure that Chikwe is going to mention that and what has been done in the country to deal with it. Next slide, please. I mean, so to conclude on, on that, and I'll come back to that in a minute, uh, I will say that um, despite the challenges, and here there have been huge challenges in uh, access to test kits, and have, uh, we've had countries almost running out of test kits, a lot of work done by WHO to provide them, but they have tested following the case definition, and some have reached out to test uh, asymptomatic uh, people and are reporting these to WHO. Another thing that I'd like to say now in terms of the data and whether people believe that what seems to be a slower evolution of uh, the pandemic in the region is concerned is that African governments put in place not only public health measures, meaning identifying a case, identifying its contacts and isolating to the extent possible both the case and the contacts. But pretty soon, as soon as um, they started getting a few cases put in place these social distancing and physical distancing measures, the so-called lockdowns. And we have observed that um, as a result, after some of these were instituted, we have had a, an extension, if you like, of the doubling time of reported cases. So if we take West Africa as a, as a region on the whole, on average, we've had the, the doubling time 
increased from about four days to about 10 days after the 1st of April, after these measures were put in place. And we've had a similar and even more um, extension of the doubling time, meaning the rate of increase of cases was slowing down. So we are seeing fewer cases than had been expected. We carried out a modeling exercise looking at uh, certain indicators of risk, uh, such as uh, population density, population movement in countries, um, so the mobility of people, the profile of the population in terms of some of the morbidity that's associated with vulnerability to COVID-19. Although we accept that our model was based on the assumption of starting from widespread um, community, widespread community transmission, we estimate, looking at that model, that the number of cases that we were expecting around the 17th of May in, say, West Africa, where we were seeing a 16% daily growth rate, growth rate before the 1st of April, is significantly less that, than what had been projected by our model. Of course, we're looking at ways to refine the model, refine some of the assumptions, and uh, we're seeing a similar significant reduction in terms of what we had projected in the cases that are being reported in Central Africa as well. And we believe, even if this may not be absolutely accurate, we are still refining the model, as I say. We think that some of the measures that were put in place have had a significant impact on slow, of slowing down the rate of spread of this pandemic in African countries. And I have to say here that this was done at really huge cost in countries. So we had lockdowns announced, people could not move out of their houses, people were not allowed to move out of the capital cities, um, markets were closed in some places. And we are, we are recognizing very much that the cost to households, especially the vulnerable households and individuals and to the country's economies were huge. So what we are hoping is that the gain in terms of um, transmission averted and the number of cases and deaths averted will have been worth that cost of uh, those physical and social distancing measures in African countries. And we are therefore thinking it's extremely important that the release of some of these measures be done in a way that will, you know, in a way uh, leverage the costs that had to be borne in order to put these measures in place in African countries. Next slide, please. So we thought to share a couple of examples of what we have observed with the combination of the testing that was initially carried out to detect cases, and then the increased testing that a couple of countries were able to do when they were able to acquire more testing capacity, both in equipment and in test kits, and some of the measures that were put in place. So if you look at this graph, you see in red the number of new cases that have been confirmed and reported to WHO in Senegal. And then we also see in blue on this graph, the number of tests that Senegal carried out after they de developed a testing kit and were able to procure and import a la large number of, uh, of test kits and had a much more aggressive case finding approach. And we can see that we, Despite seeing a very significant increase in the number of tests performed daily, we have not seen a similar uptick in the number of confirmed cases, meaning despite being able to test much more broadly, the number of cases is what would have been reported to, to WHO. 
We're also showing some of the measures that were undertaken in Senegal very early on in the pandemic. And the fact that the, the kind of trajectory that we had predicted with our model of uh, the increase in cases has not occurred in Senegal. And we believe that uh, both the public health measures and some of these social and physical distancing measures have been have had an impact of slowing down the rate of spread of the virus in Senegal. Next slide, please. We're also showing uh, a similar picture for South Africa, where, which has the, uh, the highest number of cases in the region, that uh, they also pretty early on instituted these measures. So South Africa is a country that has more capacity and resources than most countries in the African region in terms of even surveillance capacity at the sub-national level in provinces and at the district level. But um, they decided to relatively early on after seeing an increase in the number of cases which suggested to them that community spread had started put in place some of these measures which uh, started with uh, border closures um, and then uh, so stopping mass gathering schools, uh, religious services, etc. And then after a while, a full so-called lockdown where people were asked to stay at home, which you can imagine. I mean, we know that South Africa, although it's a middle-income country, it has a very high proportion of vulnerable households and people living in poverty, people living in very difficult physical circumstances. So this has come at huge cost, which the government has recognized. And they also started increasing significantly the number of tests that they have carried out. And again, similar to Senegal, we see the graph of uh, reported cases and the number of tests that they've carried out with a very uh, aggressive community outreach testing of the similar type as was seen in, in countries like um, South Korea and perhaps even Italy. And again, we have not seen an increase in cases with testing, which might have suggested that there was an initial underestimation underestimation of the cases seen due to the limitation of capacity um, to test. Next slide, please. So what have we seen by way of the response in African countries? We, we have seen a very clear declaration of uh, the intention to tackle the pandemic, the establishment of high-level interministerial um, task forces or groups that are coordinating what happens and, and the establishment of public health incident management systems in countries. Increasingly, these are being expanded and I think Nigeria is a very good example of how this capacity is going beyond the capital city into the states, into the provinces or districts so that the, the management of the response is happening at that level, which is very, very important and well strongly recommending to countries. Countries also develop plans and we are supporting now to them now to access financing. And again, just to say that these started off as plans for interventions in health and we are urging and encouraging countries to expand these to look at the socioeconomic impacts, not only on the economies, on jobs, but on people, on vulnerable households, to put in mitigation measures for the lockdowns, uh, resultant difficulties on households and people. There was a, a strong effort which uh, moved very quickly to increase the testing capacity in terms of numbers of countries within 
six weeks or so. It went from two to 45 countries. Now we are supporting countries to expand that beyond capital cities. That's still a work that's being done. Um, there was a lot of work done to procure the supplies that are needed. And this has been one of the biggest challenges in the entire response. So we're working through WHO, UNICEF, other partners, and sometimes using their own uh, resources, the countries went out onto the international market to buy some of these supplies. Um, I think we've already talked about some of the social measures. A lot of work was done to train healthcare workers and uh, people working in the social sectors, including in areas like surveillance, which is very relevant to today's topic, but also in infection prevention and control, uh, managing cases. As I said, we've carried out some uh, some modeling with uh, some of our partners and done some research also to understand how people are perceiving and understanding the pandemic at the community level, how they, they have learned about it. Um, and here, I think we've, uh, we've understood very well that there is a lot of work still to do to disseminate information to people in ways that make it most accessible, most understandable, and that enables them to internalize and take action themselves and be, if you like, gives them a sense of agency and control uh, so that they play their role in protecting themselves and their families from this uh, pandemic. Next slide, please. So some of the key challenges that we have observed, as I said before, the the distortion of the global market and some of the key items that are needed to, to control the pandemic, not only test kits, but also personal protective equipment for healthcare workers, which has been a, a huge problem. And now WHO working with other partners, UNDP, the Global Fund have put in place a global supply chain task force to coordinate and to, in an equitable way, ensure access to these uh, items. We know and are very, very uh, appreciative of the fact that at the level of the African Union as well, a procurement mechanism is being set up with members of the private sector. And we are in conversation with them about how to make, how to work together so that we are not competing on the global market. Uh, governments have had very much to work on balancing the risk between taking strong social measures with the limited information we thought at their disposal versus taking the time to set up surveillance all over the country. So they went in early. Um, we were concerned that this was very early and then we have appreciated that the time it would have taken to have surveillance all over countries would, would have lost the opportunity to bring under control in a way that, as I've said, has been carried out with some of the lockdown measures at great cost, uh, we, we have to acknowledge. So there was a need for them to balance saving lives and also protecting livelihoods and working very much across sectors um, so that it has been understood. I, I, I think if you just watch uh, the international media, we'll understand this is not just a public health problem. It's very much a political problem in some areas of political crisis. And just to highlight that um, in, in the study that we carried out with the Africa CDC and other partners, we found that there is room to improve the information dissemination and also to take stronger action against misinformation of the type that uh, made people understand that if you drink uh, lemon water with vitamin C, you can prevent uh, COVID-19. 
I, I, again, I think we have seen many examples of the types of misunderstanding. One concern that we have is that although people understand that there is a risk of this in their country, quite a significant proportion don't understand their own personal risk. So that means there's a lot of work to do in order for people to understand this risk and then take those measures themselves personally at home in their community in order to minimize the risk of uh, transmission. And finally, just uh, some concluding remarks. Next slide, please. So I would like to again reiterate that uh, our experience as WHO is that most countries, we do have a couple where we have a struggle, but most countries are regularly sharing epidemiological information with WHO as far as the cases that have been confirmed, the numbers of deaths and those people who have, uh, who have recovered. Occasionally we have challenges getting what we call line listing. So that's the more detailed drill down data that says it was so-and-so, whose contacts were so-and-so and being enabling us then to participate in more depth in the analysis of the transmission with the governments. But the, the data in terms of cases confirmed, we are getting from member states. And as I said, this is a constant interaction between our country teams in WHO and those uh, entities in the government that are responsible for the surveillance. There is wide awareness of the COVID-19 in countries, in, community, in, in, uh, in communities in the countries. And there's been a lot of work done similarly from and having lessons learned from uh, the Ebola outbreak, the work that we're doing on polio, continuing to do on polio, about the need not only to speak at people, but to speak through those that they trust, to really work with the associations, with the non-governmental organizations, with the churches, the religious groupings, in order for people to hear from those that they believe and trust. We recognize that uh, we strongly still um, encourage, recommend testing. So the earlier the testing is done, the better. And we understand that this is still challenged by the shortage of test kits at the international level and in their countries. And then finally, just to conclude by saying, we emphasize very much the need for international solidarity uh, by those countries that are capable of producing some of these items. And we are asking them not to limit the exportation by other partners to increase their production capacity to make these available. And of course, we have low income countries that have need to benefit from financing from the technical capacity of partner institutions that we are working with SWHO in order for them to understand what is going on. And very importantly, I think to recognize that for the next phase, phase of um, easing some of the, the lockdown measures, we are seeking to work very closely with countries to ensure that this is informed by data. But to conclude, we don't believe in WHO that there is a huge underestimation of the numbers of cases in countries. While we are continuing to urge and working to support our member states to improve their capacity to carry out testing and improve surveillance so that we uh, believe we are getting to the, the truer picture and to share this information with us and with the populations, of course, and with other partners that need it. Thank you very much. Well, Dr. Moeti, thank you for that very comprehensive overview. Thank you very, very much. Um, Dr. Chikwe, we are coming to you now. Uh, Theresa, I'm uh, really happy to be here and join your community for a few minutes. And Dr. Moeti is a hard act to follow. Uh, we all admire her and the leadership that she continues to provide for the continent. 
uh, in our engagement to the World Health Organization, uh, and a really critical organization for the work that we do on the continent. Uh, the World Health Assembly is going on at the moment. Um, I'm sure we would both have been in Geneva right now, but uh, we're here uh, fighting this uh, pandemic together. Uh, so we continue to admire her and her work and her support for many countries across the continent that rely on WHO for guidance every day uh, in the work that we do. Um, so um, on a few, uh, following up on, on what um, Dr. Moeti shared, I'd like to start give my, my reflection in two bits. I'll share a little bit of the, quickly on the data that we have from Nigeria and how things have evolved. But then also reflect a little bit on, on the challenges that we have and so maybe some of the lessons that we need to take out of this and uh, moving forward in order to uh, be in a better place um, in the future, uh, both in the Nigerian context and potentially around the continent and around the world. Um, so let's start with the slides first, and then at some point I'll uh, spend the last five minutes without them. The first slide really just describes the beginning of uh, the, the epidemic in Nigeria. We had a, a first case on the 27th of February, and it took quite a while actually. We were all engaged with this first case, and we did in-depth investigations. Uh, but, you know, eventually uh, further cases started emerging. Uh, we activated our emergency operations uh, center on the 28th of March. And since then, uh, well, even prior to then, but since then, it's been nonstop intensive uh, engagement every single day, uh, every hour that one is awake of every day uh, until today in, in, you know, responding to this uh, pandemic that has now uh, really intensified transmission has definitely intensified on the continent, although we're not seeing uh, the numbers yet that uh, have, we're seeing in some other parts of the world. So we now have 6,401 6, cases in Nigeria and almost every state, every 35 of our 36 plus one states are now in, uh, affected and have uh, confirmed cases. Um, we've so far discharged close to 2,000 uh, cases altogether. Uh, we've had 192 deaths, so it brings our case fatality ratio to uh, just about, just under 3%. And so that's kind of the broad numbers. If you go to the next slide, slide four, it uh, shows you uh, a distribution in numbers, just the numbers of cases per state. And you see that uh, Lagos and Cano have the highest number of cases in Nigeria, but you can see quite a number of uh, states, the Federal Capital Territory, and a lot of cases in the North, and increasingly in the Northeast. So we're very worried about the 227 cases that uh, we've confirmed in Borno State, for instance, where we all know there's a long-standing um, conflict situation. So the increasing number of cases and deaths um, in Nigeria is a source of concern and we continue to work aggressively around this. Now, the two big points of entry in Nigeria are Lagos and Kano in terms of where flights arrive, and that probably has something to do with the number of cases that we've seen in these two um, uh, states. And also, um, the population densities in these two uh, cities are probably one of the highest on the continent. 
for uh, an infection that is transmitted from person to person, it would be surprising to see uh, such a high number of cases in either Lagos or Kano. Nigeria has the fifth highest population density, and which is very different from absolute numbers. Uh, important to remember. Uh, the, the, the two other, the four countries ahead of Nigeria, two island states, and then Rwanda and Burundi that are fairly uh, small countries. But for a country the size of Nigeria to have the population density that we have, uh, there's no better place for a virus uh, that requires, is transmitted from person to person to evolve. So that's um, where we found ourselves at the moment. Next slide. The uh, sex and age distribution is, is fairly similar to what we're seeing across the world. There uh, seems to be a preponderance for males for whatever reason. Uh, and, um, and, and the age groups are similar to what is reported in, in many other uh, countries. Next slide. Now, this just shows a simple analysis, and this is accumulative numbers. Uh, so at the very beginning of the outbreak, I think Dr. Mwete also had a slide uh, in this regard. In the very beginning of the outbreak, most of the cases were in the first bar. There were imported cases. Um, and then contacts of those imported cases. Uh, but as the outbreak has evolved, um, um, these bars have now reduced and most of the cases are now in the third bar where there's no epidemiological link. So definitely an indication for increasing uh, community transmission. Uh, across the country, especially in the two, three states with, where, where we found most of our cases. So that's really um, an indication of ongoing community transmission um, across the country. Then the next slide is, is what we call an epidemic curve. Uh, these are the number of new cases per day. Um, every day at the bottom, you see the red bars indicate the number of deaths. Um, you see a few days where we had peak cases of just under 400, but since then, it's been kind of steady between 200 and 300 cases, and sometimes a bit more. Um, we've increased our testing capacity, not as radically as South Africa has done, and I'll get to the reasons for that at the end. But this is just an indication, indication of the number of cases. And, you know, we, we report on this data every single day, every night. We share the data real time for the day, that same day. So uh, not um, an easy operation to get this level of data out uh, every day uh, to the to the country, and I'll go into that a bit too. As we, the the focus of today is a bit on data and uh, in depth. Next, so these are the same type of curve, but now differentiated into four states. Uh, the one at the bottom left is uh, Lagos. They're all the same axis. So Lagos, you can see a consistent increase in the number of cases. Uh, Canada, the very sharp increase at the top left. And then it's kind of stabilized around the hundreds or just under 100. Uh, Borno, you can see we were very worried, but we haven't seen the exponential increase we were all worried about. And then the fourth one, the Federal Capital Territory, is, is Abuja, uh, where we've seen kind of, you know, almost like we saw in, in Guinea. Uh, Dr. Boeti will remember during the Ebola outbreak, where you, you didn't see a radical increase, but you did also see a, a decrease. So. We keep finding more cases every day, but we are not seeing the exponential increase, thankfully. Um, and now we've started looking at the data in a bit more depth. And these are a local government breakdown. And now we're now looking, trying to identify hotspots at the local government level. Uh, and, you know, so a lot of our thinking now will move from a very broad 
uh, strategy that was driven by uh, country indicators and um, um, you know state level responses to uh, local government level uh, responses. And we've also found that you know 51 percent of all our cases are in 10, 11 high uh, high incidence local government. So the we have 774 local governments in Nigeria, and 50% of all our cases are in 10 high incidence local governments. So we're going to use the hotspots uh, to really drive a lot of the response that we're planning over the next few months so that our resources are focused on areas where uh, it's needed the most. So the, the early curve was on the number of new cases uh, per day. This shows a cumulative number of cases every day over time. Uh, so that shows, of course, there are new cases every day, so the curve is increasing. The, the bar in yellow shows uh, the recoveries, so people that have been discharged from care. Always, uh, always a point of excitement when we're able to discharge a few people. And then uh, the number of deaths at the very uh, top. The color differentiation is not very good here, but I think the, so the, the small bars just on top of the yellow are the number of deaths uh, cumulatively over time. So the next slide shows where we are on the continent. Um, South Africa has reported the most number of cases. I, I, I definitely don't think it's unrelated to their uh, extraordinary laboratory testing capacity, uh, something that has been built over many, many years. And, and then a few other North African countries and then Nigeria. So um, this, this is where we are. These are absolute numbers, so not numbers per million. Uh, given the size of our population, the, the graph will look a little bit different if we did a ratio per, per million. So a, a few years ago, we implemented a web-based surveillance school tool called SOMAS, uh, Surveillance Outbreak Response Management and Analysis System. It's a, an online, it's a real-time software using open using an open platform. We really, we started working on this immediately after the Ebola outbreak actually, where we, we, one of the biggest limitations we had was in data collection and data management and real-time data analysis. So we started looking for a tool that we can use in real time to collect surveillance data, but to use the same tool to respond to outbreaks so that when we're collecting data on cases for surveillance, it also had an application that we could use to collect information on contacts, check whether those contacts have been followed, assign tasks, check the delivery of those tasks, uh, and um, you know, use it for the surveillance, but also for outbreak management. So we set far and wide. We ended up with this tool uh, developed by a German university. We've worked very closely with them. We were rolling this out across the country. Um, the biggest cost to this was actually the rollout and training costs. <clears throat> so we had done um, 22 states by the end of last year when this outbreak came upon us. So at least we had a system that was working um, and we had covered more than half of the country with. So it really gave us a big opportunity to try and scale quickly. And uh, so as the outbreak has progressed, we have accelerated the rollout of, of SOMAS. And without a tool like this, it would be completely impossible to manage an outbreak of this scale because you would be in a position where you're merging Excel files, you're trying to get data from labs to link with surveillance data. So completely impossible uh, to do this. So we, we rolled out this tool and this is kind of 
what we'll be using is a tablet-based tool integrated into one platform, open source, uh, with which we manage uh, all the data, generates automated epicurves, like you can see on the, the picture of the left of that slide, and provides visualization that maps graphs at any level you want. So it's not working perfectly, but this is the future, and this is what we are working uh, towards, from data collection to analysis, uh, to driving policy decisions. So a, a bit of how this data is collected, you know, someone is in the community uses an app, a tablet, uh, to collect data on actual cases, uh, their demographic uh, characteristics, male, female, some, a bit about uh, their risk factors, where we can have that, where we have that. That is also linked to a similar a platform that is in the lab. So when you have a case and you've sent a, a sample to the lab, the data is also entered in the lab and then you can link that to the surveillance data already collected. And the state has access to a dashboard that only shows them data from their own state, while at the national level we can visualize data from the entire country. So we can tell you the number of tests that have been done by local government, who is testing more or less, who is collecting data, which really then helps us to drive, <coughs> drive the response. So the next slide just shows a little bit of what we do with this data. So every night, um, uh, the whole of the country is waiting for our updates um, to know where we are. We release this depending on uh, how quickly we can uh, do some basic data cleaning and checking before we release the data. We check with the states just to be sure that the data we're about to release uh, is conforms, aligns with the data they have. So we have a team that works very hard every evening uh, to check the validity of this data, make sure the necessary leaders across the country are informed. And just before midnight, we release the update uh, for the day. Uh, the next day, then we would produce uh, a more detailed situation report updated every day for this, uh, in terms of the outbreak in Nigeria. And then almost every day, uh, we have a, a, a press briefing of the presidential task force, uh, where we would then present the data to the rest of the country and journalists will interrogate us uh, on, the, on various aspects of the data. Today is the one day that this press briefing is not holding. So uh, a very intense engagement with the population right now on um, infectious disease incidents data. The first time it's happened with this level of intensity. We're pushed very hard to explain this. Uh, two new cases here or not enough cases there. So um, there's always a very engaged discussion on the cases, where they're coming from, why, and all of that, which I think will, in the long term, provide us really the basis for more uh, engagement with the public around infectious diseases. So what impact has this had already? Um, on, the, on the left is a, uh, a recent meeting uh, I had with uh, the, Mr. President, uh, Mohamed Buhari, where you know, we go with him, he, he asks us detailed and in-depth questions about cases, where they're coming from, and uses this. Of course, this is not the only data stream he, he needs to make his decisions. He also needs data from the impact of their, on the economy, impact on security, so all sorts of uh, data streams. But at least I can uh, offer him detailed epidemiological data on an infectious disease. I, I, don't, I don't think there's ever been a time where a president has been so interested, uh, or many presidents around the world have been as interested and as engaged 
on, on incidence data on a, an infectious disease. <clears throat> we also use this data to make decisions every day on, on uh, where to send teams, uh, respond, rapid response teams, and how to allocate resources within our agency in supporting the states. And just last weekend, we had a mid-action review, uh, so reviewed our entire outbreak response and tweaked our strategy in specific areas to uh, focus our, our response uh, differently as the outbreak uh, progressed. I'd like to use Teresa in the last few minutes to discuss a little bit on, on how this data is generated and, and, um, and why, we're in, uh, why it's so important to focus on some parts of uh, this moving forward. So unlike any outbreak recently, we, we, we need laboratory confirmation of our cases in order to make decisions. So there, there are certain diseases that present in a unique way. Uh, one obvious one would be polio, uh, where there's a flaccid paralysis of one limb, uh, where you know, there are very few other infectious diseases that present quite like polio. So you know, when you see a case of polio, for most clinicians with 99% certainty, you can make that diagnosis as polio. For, for something like COVID, um, it's almost impossible to make this diagnosis without uh, laboratory confirmation. So the, the platform to confirm infectious disease has never been more important. And over the past 60 years, since our independence across many countries on the continent, we simply haven't invested enough in this infrastructure. So we have a term I took up from one of my colleagues, uh, Iruka Okeke, uh, she calls the laboratory insufficiency on the continent. Uh, I went through medical school being taught that every febrile illness is malaria until proven otherwise. And you know, I trained in the uh, early 90s, late 80s, and you know, not too long ago. And this is how we were socialized. And we were all socialized to think uh, and make that a clinical diagnosis uh, on, on malaria based on a, a history of a febrile illness. And we, we now know, uh, given the emergence of a, a rapid diagnostic test for malaria, that a lot of the cases that we used to diagnose as malaria uh, probably weren't. In fact, they weren't. And as we have developed our testing capacity, um, we haven't changed sufficiently in our clinical practice. So wh when I got appointed in 2016 uh, at the Nigeria Center for Disease Control, improving our laboratory uh, platforms together with the surveillance infrastructure I just described was one of our key priorities. And we invested a lot of time, energy, convincing people that, listen, this is so important. And we scratched around from fund, for funds from wherever we could find uh, to do this. When COVID-19 uh, emerged on the scene, we, we pushed very hard uh, with support from WHO, the African CDC, and a lot of our uh, partners around the world to establish a, a laboratory framework, a laboratory platform. But we are limited by the hardware. You know, the number of molecular labs that we had at the time in Nigeria were so few that yes, they provided the platform for diagnosing fairly rare diseases where we could you know, transport the sample of a suspected case of Lassa to one of our five labs. But now when you suddenly had a, a pandemic, something that affected every single uh, state in Nigeria where people wanted real-time information in hours 
of, a, of the results. You know, we were simply not prepared for, uh, in terms of our uh, laboratory architecture for, an, uh, for a new virus that was spreading as rapidly as this. And that's why we're where we are now, uh, pushing on these results. And if there's one thing we should do over the next few years is to strengthen this work, build on it, and make sure that we are better placed uh, to manage uh, the, uh, infectious disease. And we can't manage what we can't measure. So we need solid laboratories and uh, surveillance architecture, which is what we're building in real time as this uh, outbreak evolves uh, in Nigeria and across the world. All right, we're going to move on now. Um, before David Kay speaks, we'd like to roll a two-minute video. Um, as we know, Africa is not one country, and we know that this war is being fought on at least 54 different fronts. Um, but there has been a lot of discussion around Tanzania in particular, and the data coming out of Tanzania. And we just want to put Tanzania in perspective. So um, right now, we're just going to roll to a video of, uh, from Voice of America. VOA and a piece that was done on Tanzania. Unlike other African cities, Tanzania's economic capital, Dar es Salaam, remains open for business, even though schools are closed and public gatherings prohibited. This has led some to criticize authorities for adapting comparatively weaker measures against the coronavirus and for not providing regular updates on infections. Fish trader Sajda Muhammad says with the government showing little concern, She's taking fewer precautions. Many citizens are not getting proper information about coronavirus. You may hear that coronavirus no longer exists, but on this side, two people have died. On the other, one person is dead. I used to wear a mask properly, but now I just wear it on my ears because we didn't get information. Tanzania's Opposition Alliance for Change and Transparency, ACT Party, has strongly criticized the government's handling of the pandemic as too secretive at the expense of public health. If you don't provide updates, you are telling people that the problem is over. So people are no longer taking precautions. People uh, continue with their business as usual. I have seen uh, panels of people where you have huge amount of people uh, for funeral services, which is a very dangerous. Tanzania's government dismisses criticism of its lack of coronavirus infection updates. We know we have diseases like high blood pressure, malaria, diabetes, HIV, and others that also kill. Let's leave the number of deaths to be provided by our experts. Some citizens support the delay of information. They believe doing so reduces panic over the disease. This issue of delaying of updates doesn't affect me in any way, and I see this as a good thing when they delay the updates. We live peacefully and do our business. But battling coronavirus requires updated information, says a Tanzanian rights activist. COVID-19. Our enemy is COVID-19. So at the moment, when we are trying to curb COVID-19, at the time we are trying to make sure there are no new infections, we should provide updates on time. Meanwhile, Sadda continues selling fish so she can feed her family, knowing they are all in danger of contracting the virus. Charles Kombe, Povio News, Dar es Salaam. David, I think that this speaks to why the work that you do globally is so important. And so with that, no further uh, delay, I'd like to introduce you and turn the panel over to you. Great. 
Thank you so much, Teresa. It's really an honor to, to be participating in this panel, and in particular uh, to, to follow uh, doctors Moetti and, and Chikwe, who really, I think, um, put in important context many of the data and testing and surveillance issues that are so critical to dealing with, uh, with COVID-19. Now, of course, uh, unlike doctors Moetti and Chikwe, I'm, I'm not a public health expert. Uh, my field is the freedom of opinion and expression. As Teresa introduced me earlier, the Human Rights Council of the United Nations, which is the central human rights body of the UN, appointed me to monitor freedom of expression around the world. And in that role, I report on different thematic issues and communicate with governments around the world about all sorts of issues pertaining to freedom of expression, both with respect to, to government behavior and to the private sector's behavior. And of course, as everybody knows, and here we are on a Zoom call, uh, our world is, is virtual. Our world involves uh, private actors in a very significant way. And, uh, and many of the issues arise both in terms of state regulation and company, um, company policies. So what I'd like to do is just say a couple of words about the intersection of expression of access to information and dealing with the disease pandemic. And, and I'll start by noting something that I think is really uh, useful that I found in the context of my own research, and that is the WHO's own guidance about the absolute importance of risk communication. Now, this is as a matter of public health, right? The, the WHO in 2018 produced a document that is called Managing Epidemics. And, and in the context of this, this document, which I really commend to people if, you're, if you have the opportunity to, to look it up, it's Managing Epidemics, WHO, you'll find it pretty quickly. Um, they identify not only the public health strategies that we might think of as public health interventions of medical and health interventions and surveillance, but it also talks about the essential role of communicating with the public, of providing information to the public. And the video from uh, Tanzania really highlights the importance that people assign to having information from public health authorities and from, uh, from government leaders. And, and I found that particularly interesting and useful because it highlights the intersection of the freedom of expression, which under international human rights law involves everyone's right to seek, receive, and impart information and ideas of all kinds, regardless of frontiers and through any media. It connects that right with public health. And I think this is useful because it allows us to see that the human right to freedom of expression doesn't operate in opposition to public health. You know, there's, there's a tendency to see many of these issues as trade-offs, whereby we can have a little bit more public health, but a little bit less of, of a particular human right. This is a, a common way of thinking about uh, life in, um, in the context of terrorism as well. Is it security or is it liberty? But in fact, I think what the WHO is saying, although it's not in the language of human rights, I think what the WHO is saying is that the right 
to freedom of expression actually advances public health. And I think that all of our discussion around data, around communicating with the public is, is not just a public health discussion, but is also a human rights discussion. So let me just identify maybe four or five different areas where I think we see this in particular um, in real uh, stark relief. And, uh, and these are areas where I think we can see quite evidently that the public's access to information is also a function of government policy to promote good health, um, particularly in the face of the pandemic. So the first is access to information. As I think everybody is, is probably familiar, most governments, including across the African continent, have policies related to access to public information. That is information that's held by public authorities. Of course, in the context of the pandemic, many resources are, are even further limited than they, they might normally be. Um, many employees are at home in a kind of lockdown situation. And so, of course, there's room for um, perhaps a little bit less attention to the, uh, to the framework of access to information. That is, if I seek information from the government, perhaps I need to wait a little bit longer to get it. But generally speaking, access to information, that means the government's provision of data, the government's provision of information, even about the evolving understanding of the disease is part of the human right of access to information. And, and I think it's important for governments also with the support of the private sector to be ensuring that those systems that enable access to information continue to exist. That also means something else. And that means that information that government provides should not be disinformation. Uh, we've seen this in many contexts around the world where governments are minimizing data. Uh, they are uh, failing to provide accurate information in an intentional way uh, to, to people. And that's also an aspect of access to information that we need to be very careful about. And I'm happy to talk a little bit more about that um, a little bit later. The second issue is access to the internet. Now, of course, uh, on the continent, it's common for people to have access through their mobile devices. Um, one of the things that we've seen over the last several years, and this has been a real uh, problem uh, in Africa, but not only in Africa, is the government's throttling of speeds or even the entire uh, shutting down of internet access in the context of public protest, uh, in the context of school exams, in other contexts. And uh, some of those internet shutdowns have persisted even in the context of the pandemic. We've seen this in the context of India and Kashmir. We saw this uh, for a couple of months in the context of Oromia in Ethiopia. I think it's essential that people continue to have access to the internet. I think one of the things that we see in the context of the pandemic is something that I'm sure everybody on the call uh, uh, in this forum understands already because you are accessing the internet right now access to the internet has become an essential way to enjoy our right to freedom of expression, the right to seek and receive information of all kinds. 
And it's essential, not only for governments to ensure that the people have access to the internet, but it's also essential that private actors, and that could mean telecommunications companies, it can mean um, the private platforms, that they ensure that their systems are available and that when governments impose different kinds of constraints on access to the internet, that, that those private actors push back. Now, of course, there, there are limits to that ability to push back, but I think it's essential for, for companies to be thinking in these terms about the rights, particularly in a pandemic, that individuals enjoy. A third area is journalism. Um, again, around the world, we've seen increasing pressure on journalists, um, certainly before the pandemic, but even during the pandemic, the International Press Institute has been uh, tracking the pressure that's been put on journalists during the pandemic. And they've identified at least 200 cases of intimidation of journalists leading to even detention of journalists uh, or expulsion of journalists from areas when they are reporting on the pandemic. And of course, part of the access to information and the freedom of expression includes the individual's right of access to what journalists are reporting. Um, for, for me or you or any individual to be able to understand what is happening in their neighborhood, in their community, in their country, for any individual to have the ability to understand what is happening around the world with respect to the pandemic requires an open, uh, free uh, media, an independent media, a media that also holds government accountable for the different kinds of steps that it's taking. Uh, of course, there's resistance from many governments who might suggest that accountability in the context of a pandemic or the free flow of information in the context of a pandemic may cause more panic uh, than actual enlightenment of people. But I think that it's important, much as uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel has, has done in, in recent months, it's important to treat the public as adults, as capable of critical thinking. And by giving them full information and giving them access to journalism, I think that's one of the things that, that people are um, and governments would be enabling. The fourth area, and then perhaps I'll stop after discussing this, is the issue of private platforms and disinformation. Of course, um, private internet platforms, and, and by private platforms, I'm mainly talking about social media platforms such as YouTube uh, and Facebook, um, but there are many others as well. Uh, they have enormous power in the context of public life today. And one of the areas where they have real significant power is their ability to serve as a platform for the dissemination of disinformation. And, um, and I think that it's important for us to be thinking about what, what role do we want the platforms to be playing? And what role do we expect governments to be playing when we're talking about issues like disinformation? Disinformation is very real. But one of the things that the WHO talks about in its managing epidemics um, document from 2018 that I mentioned before is the importance of governments listening to the public, understanding public fears, and also understanding the kind of gossip and rumors and disinformation that may be spreading across, uh, across societies. 
And one of the problems of having laws that criminalize disinformation or uh, insisting that companies uh, um, clamp down on disinformation is that governments then lack some of the ability to see what the fears of the public might be. They lack an understanding and ability to see exactly what kind of rumors and disinformation might be spreading throughout society. And the WHO talks about the importance of correcting disinformation. And I think I would take it to another level, which is that not only is it critical for, for governments to be correcting disinformation, um, but it's, it's essential not to criminalize or to penalize disinformation unless it involves issues like fraud um, that, are, that is designed um, or, or even has the, the strong intention to, to create a public health harm. Um, but it's important for government to have access to this information so that they can correct it. And by penalizing information, by penalizing, criminalizing disinformation, as some governments are doing, I think what we will end up finding is that people will be more resistant in their willingness to share legitimate information because they'll be second guessing themselves about, well, if I share this information, if it's not true, will I be subject to some kind of penalty by the government? So those are some of the areas that, that I would like to highlight. I realize that we are, we are running shorter on time and that it's important to get to Q&As. There are many, many other issues that, that I think we could discuss, but I would just conclu conclude on my initial point, which is that human rights and freedom of expression and access to information should be understood as a part of the effort to confront the pandemic, not as a, uh, as a barrier to, to dealing with the public health crisis that, that we're all facing in all parts of the world. Thanks very much. Great. Well, thank you very much, David, for that very important um, contribution to this discussion. So we're going to go now to Q&A. Um, Dr. Chikwe, are you there? I am. I am. Okay, wonderful. And our first question is coming from um, someone who has just retired as a senior executive at the African Export-Import Bank. Uh, this is Obi Emekekekwu. Um, Obi, can you hear us? I can hear you, yes. Okay, great, Obi. Can you please um, present your question to Dr. Chikwe, please? Thank you very much, Dr. Chikwe, and to everybody. Um, the war against uh, COVID-19 is also becoming an information war. Um, you see lots of uh, conspiracy theories, misinformation, disinformation. So my question is really, what are the steps being taken by your team to address this, uh, this situation? And what has been the impact on the work that you're doing? So th thanks a lot, my brother. You know, it's, you, you couldn't have hit it, uh, said it any better. Um, you know, we are really um, in a situation where we have to take this almost as seriously as we take um, the outbreak in it itself. At NCDC, we have what we call a crisis communication team that works every day, both proactively and reactively, to uh, manage the information and try to provide every Nigerian with credible information to the best of our knowledge. And, and we're, we, when we don't know, we're not afraid to say we don't know. Uh, but for things that we do know, we put it out there and put it out there aggressively. 
Um, and we've done this from the very first day of the outbreak, being completely open with the work that we do, uh, with the results that come in, uh, sometimes against uh, severe uh, pressure, but we have stuck to it and tried to provide Nigerians every day with information that they need to make critical decisions. We have a website called COVID-19 at ncdc.gov.ng that's updated regularly with new guidelines, new information, new data. We have uh, engaged with all aspects of media, new media, old media, print, TV, online, uh, just to try and get out the message. But where I think we need to do more is not just what the NCDC says. You know, there are many Nigerians, many, many credible scientists and leaders that keep quiet when uh, this disinformation is going on. And I would love to see a lot more voices from across Nigeria and from across the world uh, when something ridiculous gains traction and uh, to come up and say, listen, this is not possible. Listen to this source. And so we've had a lot of support from a few places, but there's nothing I would love more than to see more voices on the right side of science and of history to come up and say, listen, this is actually how we're not the only country doing this. We're not the only country desperate for a cure. And then I'd love to hear voices that we're around at the beginning of the HIV epidemic. At that time too, I remember the anxiety around the world. I remember how there were claims for cures, uh, claims for miraculous uh, decisions, uh, remedies. I remember political leaders that didn't do what they had to do at that point in history and have, have never left, that legacy has stayed with them. So there's a lot that we are doing, but there's a lot that others can do to uh, strengthen the, the, the basis, the scientific basis of the work that we do, and to explain to other people that certain things take time. And sometimes it's better to be a little bit slower and, and but sure. But just one last point. Um, there has never been a time in history where there have been more rapid progress on a single new emerging virus than with COVID-19. Uh, you have to remember this virus emerged sometime between uh, December last year and January this year. And we know more about it. We've made more progress towards a vaccine, diagnostics, uh, treatment than any other infectious disease that I know about in five months. So it's also important to take a historical perspective on the progress that we've made, and we will continue trying to communicate through uh, to, uh, the, to the global community through all the means possible. That's one reason I've taken this opportunity as seriously as we have at NCC. Great, thank you very much for your response, Chikwe. Uh, we have another question that has just come in for David Kay, and that is from Ayatollah Jagoon. Ayatollah is the Chief Compliance Officer and Company Secretary for Owando in Nigeria. Ayatollah, would you like to ask your question for, uh, to David Kay, please? Yes, thank you very much. Um, my question is how to uh, build trust. There's obviously been over the years a breakdown in trust when it comes to citizens and governments. And what is really important is what do we need to do um, as citizens and as governments and as corporates as well to help rebuild that trust um, because it's so key when it comes to um, the quality um, of an integrity of information that we're getting and being able to believe it, as well as, and that's key to, um, to, to ensuring compliance by 
by the citizens when it comes to an easing of the lockdown in terms of the precautionary measures. So my question is really what can be done across African countries by governments, by the corporate sector, and, and, and by civil society organizations. Thank you. That's, that's really an excellent question. And, and I think you, you encapsulate in many ways uh, the absolute importance of ensuring that people have access to information because it's not just, it's not just a kind of procedural right that I can uh, open up my, my laptop and go online and, and get information from the government. It's, it's about a process of building a kind of mutual trust between government and other authorities, um, which could be health authorities, but could also be um, private sector actors, building up that trust between them and, and the public. Um, and, and I think that my, my discussion of the elements of freedom of expression in the context of the pandemic, in part are designed, I mean, those rights are designed to build up trust so that on the one hand, individuals believe that they're able to access information. And, um, and on the other hand, that if they believe that they are treated as, as adults uh, who have critical thinking skills on their own, that they're more likely to, to, to sort of take the advice from public authorities and follow, follow them through. And so I think there's a lot of room on the one hand for governments to be ensuring that they are providing open access to information because that builds trust. I think it builds trust, and we know this in our interpersonal relationships too, it builds trust when government listens and then corrects or listens and then amplifies when what the public is saying is true. That part is, is, is essential to building trust. And on the private sector side, particularly in the context of, of private platforms and telecommunications companies, I think to the, to the extent that, that they're in a position to ensure continuing access and open uh, availability of the platforms to individuals, that that also gives people the sense of, of control. And, and I'll just close by saying that in a moment of pandemic, there is a lot of fear, there's a lot of isolation, and, and opening up access to information and communication, I think is part of the effort of getting people to feel that they can have some control over their destiny, even in a situation where, where so many people are ordered to stay home. Thank you very much. Very, very useful. Thank you. Great, great webinar, by the way. Thank you. Okay, Mike um, Ebizim, are you there, Mike? Okay, good. Thanks, uh, Dr. Tukwe. Thanks so much for your talk. Um, we are so happy with your efforts in Nigeria on the uh, NCDC uh, control of uh, COVID-19. But I want to find out what's going on with the uh, issues we are hearing, that uh, the treatment for malaria and for COVID-19 are the same. You know, there's kind of like now a controversy on whether the malaria treatment and for COVID-19 are one and the same. Can you please tell us more on what is this treatment for COVID-19? I want to know if the same treatment for malaria is sent to for COVID-19, that's one. Two, is there more need for um, uh, uh, more testing kits in Nigeria? Do we have more testing in Nigeria going on now? Uh, I want to be clear if 
there's more efforts to improve the testing of patients in Nigeria. And if there's need for more testing kits accordingly, please tell us. Uh, thank you so much. Thanks a lot for those two uh, really good questions. Um, so, uh, you know, COVID-19 is a new virus. <laughs> and when you have, you can't have a treatment pre-existing for uh, a disease that is not discovered. So the, the search for treatment only starts when the virus emerges. Uh, so since January, uh, scientists around the world have been looking for a, a new treatment for this new virus. Now, there's only one way in science to get to a treatment, you do uh, clinical trials. You first look for if a, a substance works in vitro and then you try it eventually on humans through a very well-defined and regulated uh, process. And only one drug so far has shown any signs of improving the outcomes of people uh, with COVID-19 as a drug called remdesivir. Uh, but it's still just, those results just came out. So apart from that, uh, nothing else has improved outcomes. However, remember that 70 to 80% of everyone infected will um, recover, won't even show symptoms. Most of those that do show symptoms will recover entirely on their own just by the body's own immune system responding to it. And the core of treatment right now is managing the respiratory symptoms in order for the body to recover on its own. So th this is the situation with COVID-19. Malaria is a completely different disease, has a, a caused by a parasite, um, you know, has a completely different pathogenesis. Um, so there's really very little similarity between these two diseases, except that they're, they're present in the same way. Um, the only quote-unquote controversy is around the use of hydroxychloroquine, uh, which has no proven effect on COVID-19. In fact, has been demonstrated to have some harmful effects. So really there's no uh, similarity apart from the uh, similar clinical presentations of these two uh, illnesses. On the second question, we are working extremely hard to increase our laboratory diagnostic capacity in the country, which includes physical laboratories, people, and reagents. So, you know, when people talk about test kits, you think about it as, uh, you know, a malaria test kit, which is a, a small rapid test kit that you can put into blood and it tells you, do you have malaria, yes or no? Or a pregnancy test or HIV test. These are rapid diagnostic test kits that took years to develop, but we now have for this uh, condition. For COVID-19, unfortunately, we don't have any of this. So the testing is a complex molecular uh, process uh, called PCR, RT-PCR. It takes about six, seven hours to go through the process. And so it's very complex. But yes, we're building up capacity rapidly. We've set ourselves a target of testing 2 million uh, people in the next three months. We're in the second week of those three months. So we've put ourselves under a lot of pressure because we know that the pathway into understanding the scale of uh, this outbreak is through testing and we're doing everything possible to increase the number of tests we're able to do in Nigeria. Thank you very much, Chikwe. Um, and we have our last question coming in from Arishola O, who is a principal in an investment company that makes investments into the healthcare sector. And the question um, for you as well, Chikwe. 
Uh, good afternoon, Dr. Chikwe. And um, two questions. One is uh, how the test results for COVID-19 how it disseminated. There has been a lot of issues around, you know, patients not seeing, you know, their result. There are those that actually said that uh, when the test was conducted, um, uh, people just came from the isolation center to inform them that they tested positive and they were uh, quote unquote uh, kidnapped and taken to isolation center. You know, that they weren't given any, you know, any time to, you know, to, to get ready uh, and to, to be moved to the isolation. So I want to find out what is the protocol, you know, for, you know, give, giving people their results. You know, is this the normal protocol in the medical care or because this is an epidemic, I mean, pandemic, you know, there's a, a different uh, protocol involved. Uh, the second question I want to ask is, um, um, I know that um, China was able to handle this uh, via effective lockdown and, you know, they've been able to uh, flatten the curve and then, you know, return to normal, you know, normal economic activity. You know, so my question is, if you are the governor of Lagos today, you know, uh, what will you be doing? I mean, what will, you, what will be your recommendation as regards the lockdown? Because we've done the lockdown, it seems not to have been effective. Now we've eased, we're trying to ease the lockdown, the cases are increasing by the day, and people are saying, well, we need to look at livelihood, you know, and that's against even life itself. The sending of results for an outbreak like this always goes through the state epidemiologist. So, our role uh, is to provide, in this case, uh, the organization, the uh, infrastructure for laboratory diagnosis. Some of the labs we manage directly from NCDC. Most of them actually belong to state governments and some private sector labs. And so once we get the test, the results done, the results are sent to your state epidemiologist. It's the role of the state epidemiologist to then disseminate these results and use it for public health action. You know, so for, in, in normal cases where it's just you and your doctor, you have a relationship that you have a disease, you go to a doctor, he provides care, and you can manage that. Here, there's a public health uh, impact because you're being brought into care, not just for your own treatment, but for, to prevent transmission to others. So different states have had different approaches to that, uh, but we, we leave it to the state governments uh, to decide on how they want to manage that. But we give detailed results to the state epidemiologists where it's easy for them. They do print out people's results. Sometimes they send text messages and sometimes they drive directly to that patient's, uh, that individual's house, depending on a series of factors that makes one approach easier or not. And the second question is actually very important. You know, because when you think about, when you think about lockdown in China, People only think about the lockdown part of that term. What isn't communicated as effectively is that with that lockdown, that what the Chinese government did was provide food, medicines, and everything people need to stay alive and, and mobile to their entire population that needed it for the duration of the lockdown. So it wasn't just locking down. To lock people down, you have to have the ability to provide them a means to live. You have to guarantee them that they're not going to lose their jobs and they will continue getting paid. So this is really what China did and was able to push down transmission as radically as it did. 
But as we have seen across the world, and not only in Nigeria, in Western Europe, in the US, in many other countries, to do that is very difficult. So the reason why lockdowns haven't worked as well as they worked in China is because barely any other country can provide the level of support that people need to stay alive despite a lockdown. And, and that's the challenge we've had in Nigeria. And, you know, it's not been an easy decision. If I was the governor of Lagos, I will do what he's doing, exactly. You know, look at the health data, but look at the economic data, look at the security data, make the very difficult decisions leaders are elected to do. And that's what the governor is doing. That's what Mr. President has had to do. And knowing that there are no easy solutions and really relying on the collaboration and cooperation of all Nigerians to get out of this. Because there's no other way. We all have to be part of the solution and take responsibility for and gradually taking us back uh, to some level of normality as the scientists work towards a, a vaccine uh, on their path. So I, I hope those, that answers both questions. Well, I think we are coming to the end of our session here, and I want to thank all of our panelists, Dr. Moeti, Dr. Chikwe, David Kay, and the thousands of you who continue to join us every week um, with your wonderful questions and your um, very helpful engagement. Thank you, and we look forward to seeing you next week.